Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the New Hampshire primary postmortem. Can't wait. Also, Victor Davis Hansen joins me to talk about the Russia hoax scandal and more. And is a deep state cracking Jesse Lou, Roger Stone, and the unknown anonymous. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Well, the New Hampshire primary was yesterday. Lots of great data out of there. I'm going to keep this First Five very short today, but just to tell you a couple wonderful things out of it. Number one, and this is a big number, it's a little bit hard, so I'm hoping Matt, the wonderful producer, is able to put these numbers up on the screen for you. But where we are right now, you may, everyone focus, of course, in New Hampshire in the Democrat primary, which does matter, we'll talk about in a moment. But the Republicans had their primary also. And in the state of New Hampshire, looking back at data that relates to the um, times when you had a, an incumbent Republican a primary being held for an incumbent Republican, as we have now, because Trump is you know, finishing first term this year and hopefully heading into a second term. Previous years, we had for President Reagan, uh, you know, it, which in the same situation of an incumbent presidency heading into a second term, for President Reagan, you had 65,000 votes basically by Republicans in New Hampshire. Clinton in 1996, and so they're Democrats too. Clinton in 1996, 76,000. Uh, Bush, 43, so George W. Bush, 52,000. Obama, 49,000. Point being, those numbers are all the number of Republicans who turned out in the primary, the Republican primary in New Hampshire. What President Trump got as of last night, and they weren't even still, they were still counting, is 127,937, or obviously getting close, 128,000, far more than double Obama or Bush. And the reason I want, I'm telling you is this. A lot of people try to portray President Trump as a very controversial figure, and that maybe somehow in the red meat South, or in other places, he's popular, but obviously when we're talking about New Hampshire, we're talking about New England area, not normally perceived to be one of the, you know, red meat kind of Republican areas, but the Republican voters turned out in numbers to vote for the president in his primary, even though he had no serious challenger, even though there's no one even making a blip on the radar as a challenger to him in the primary. It's a signal of support for of Republicans within New Hampshire uh, for President Trump. And the Democrat side, my very quick point is this. Democrats do not want to be where they are. This is not how the Democrat establishment pictured this whole race going. They had the key, the one who emerged just barely as the leader is avowed Democrat socialist Bernie Sanders. Just behind him, Pete Buttigieg, a completely inexperienced mayor of a small town who, as more and more people look at his record and look at his positions on issues, he is not, he is not what he's trying to portray himself to be. He's trying to say, I'm your safe Biden moderate Democrat, only I'm not old and crazy like Biden. I'm the young guy, I'm the up and coming, but the more people know about him, his record is 
uh, scary in terms of inexperience. His positions are radical. And the, and the, the uh, kind of favorites of the Democrat establishment, the ones they hope would really make it, the key one being Vice President Biden. I think he was in fifth place yesterday. He just, yeah, he got 8.4% of the vote. So Democrats in a world of hurt. I'm going to come back to this later in the show, but I want to wrap up today's first five by saying these primaries matter, these races matter, even though it's early on, because what it's doing is it's setting some expectations for the primaries coming up. It is a signal where the voters are, what they're thinking about. I have more data to share later with you in the show about what drove those voters to choose the candidates that they did. Very, very interesting stuff. But I want to wrap up today's first five by saying this is not at all where the Democrats want to be after their second primary in 2020. And that, my friends, is today's first five. So I mentioned before the show started, we have a guest joining us. He's joining us by phone. Before we get him on, I just want to show you his book. This is a gentleman named Victor Davis Hanson. This is his book. I'm hoping you can see it. Um, it, is, it. I'm holding up for you to see it. You can order it on Amazon. In fact, on my website, americachemitalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down, list of links. I put a link to the page. You can order this off of Amazon. It's called The Case for Trump by Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, who's joining us in a moment. I will tell you this, so he came and spoke last week in Dallas, and uh, I was able to go to that event, and someone who sat at our table at this luncheon where he was speaking commented to me, you know, she said, I voted for Trump in 2016 very cautiously, a little bit timidly, but I couldn't go with the Democrats, so I went with President Trump. Well, she talked about, and this is a very wonky friend of mine, very, very substantive thinker, she read this book and her comment at the luncheon was this book made me feel so much better about my vote about where we're headed as a country so what i want to say to you my friends as we listen to, um, talk to dr hansen consider buying this book and buying it for your friends who may be kind of wavering republicans who think well i'm usually republican but i'm a little bit dicey about president trump because i think president trump is actually doing a tremendous job i think the book will help you understand great ways to explain to people why it is we're on a great path with president trump and with that i believe we have dr victor davis hansen online hello sir hello great to have you so glad you could join us today so um first of all i commend you on your book and you know you write so many columns i i'm kind of jumping around thinking oh i want to talk about so many of them but i want to focus let me just quickly tell our listeners i believe uh, most of our listeners know but victor davis hansen uh he is a senior fellow at at Stanford university hoover institution um, his focus is classics and military history. Um, he has a long series of awards for his academic writing, his teaching, his, uh, he's just a wonderful columnist and thinker, historian and military historian. And in fact, many of you have remember the show, we've had Raymond Ibrahim on the show twice, who I believe worked under Dr. Hansen writing his book. So he's a, just a scholar extraordinaire, very happy to have him join us. So, sir, you wrote this column, and as a historian, this is what I want to dive in and ask you about. So you wrote a column relating to uh, where we are in this country in 2020, dealing with the ongoing and unsettled business of the alleged Trump-Russia collusion, the Russian hoax, what was cooked, seemed to have been cooked up inside the Department of Justice, the FBI, in bringing a, a whole investigation of President Trump which was unfounded related to allegations of supposed collusion with Russia. And you characterize it in your column called the once in future scandal as one of the most serious scandals in American history. So I want to start with 
as a historian, why do you characterize this particular scandal? Um, and even though and we're still in the middle of it, but how do you see it as one of the most important scandals in American history? Well, it had all the elements of uh, an effort to really wreck the Constitution and the electoral process, which is very ironic because that's what they accused the victim of uh, of this sort of conspiracy. And by that, I mean, think about it. We had foreign nationals, in this case, Christopher Steele, a British subject who was using sources from Russia that were unverified. And some of the sources have even said that even their sensational rumors were mischaracterized by Steele, who then created a dossier, which through three firewalls was hired by Hillary Clinton and then peddled and seeded uh, at the Department of Justice, the CIA, and the FBI, all for the express purpose of destroying the Trump candidacy. In fact, two articles at least appeared about the dossier um, before the election. And then it was used again to warp the FISA court process to spy illegally on an American citizen in hope of ricocheting off him and then trapping more Trump uh, campaign, mostly minor campaign officials. And this was in context with the CIA and the FBI, but largely the CIA, I think, using foreign informants to get information on the Trump campaign. And all of this was put into menus or intelligence assessments that were shown to the uh, Department of Justice, Loretta Lynch and Barack Obama, apparently, at the intelligence briefing. And then on top of this, we had uh, people like Samantha Power and Susan Rice requesting uh, from the National Security Agency and other intelligence groups that the names of Americans that had been masked be unmasked. And some of those names of people who were surveilled were then leaked to the press. So it was a systematic effort across uh, the major bureaucracies, mostly justice and intelligence bureaucracies, to first destroy the Trump campaign and then to abort his transition and then to hurt his presidency. And it's still going on. We have uh, a lot of holdovers in the National Security Council, just to take one uh, example, the National Security Council staff, I should say, that grew to 230 under Obama. And uh, Donald Trump just let go 70, but that's a day late and dollar short. We're in the fourth year of his presidency. And we know that, for example, the Venman twins, one of them who authorized John Bolton's uh, memoir and said there was no conflict. The other person who was in contact with the whistleblower, the whistleblower himself, two members of Adam Schiff's uh, present congressional staff that worked on impeachment. All of those people came out of the Trump White House and they were actively leaking and doing business with his political opposition, diplomatic corps, people like Fiona Hill, mm-hmm. all of the... Um, uh, in an effort to hurt his presidency. And so I don't think we've ever seen such a systematic breakdown of government in the sense that it became entirely politicized and tried to destroy a particular political candidate and president. Dr. Hansen, that was a great summary. And I was just going to just very slightly expand on that or um, maybe be repetitious, but it is the highest levels of our national law enforcement. It wasn't a, you know, a rogue field office in Cleveland. It was the highest levels, seemingly, of within the Department of Justice, FBI, perhaps the CIA, all of that, NSA, 
people more or less aware of what was occurring. And the mission wasn't, as some other scandals may have been, to slight, to, to uh, mishandle money, to extort, to uh, get foreign policy slightly changed. It was to bring down the presidency, bring, bring down the candidate and then the presidency. I just, I, I concur, I could not agree more strongly. It's the most astonishing and, and brazen and, and yet unresolved scandal we have ever, ever addressed in this country. But I want to, you, you mentioned, I think in your article, I think you mentioned how uh, during the Senate impeachment trial, Adam Schiff, Republican member of, Con excuse me, Democrat member of Congress from California, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, still spoke in his impeachment, which had, didn't have anything to do with the Trump-Russia collusion, but still they're trying to impeach the president, still made reference to the, uh, seeming to imply that he believed it to be the case, that the Trump-Russia collusion really happened, we just didn't prove it or couldn't get the bottom of it. We seem to be operating in two parallel universes in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, but what's disturbing is one of these universes is anti-constitutional, insurrectionary. By that I mean we, the taxpayers, paid $35 million, 22 months, 88 weeks, of constant leaking, illegal leaking out of the mule investigation, 500 subpoenas, and this all-star dream team, hunter-killer team that the press was so happy because it was partisan, found nothing about collusion. And yet here's Adam Schiff talking about Trump figuratively or imaginatively uh, selling Alaska to Russia. That's what he said on the floor. How could we stop him if yep. we were to do that? And what my point is that it's almost as if an American is indicted he goes into a trial. The DA then finds out that the indictments are having no resonance with the judge or the jury. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, by the way, we're going to charge you with something else. I just thought of another crime. You can't. He, he would be disbarred and thrown out of court. And so this is what we're doing now. And it's all justified on the idea that Trump poses some existential threat to the republic and therefore any means necessary to abort his presidency are justified. And these are by people with Harvard law degrees or the top people of our so-called elite, in the case of the FISA courts, Sally Yates, Rod Rosenstein, James Comey, uh, John Brennan, James Clapper, Andrew McKay. We know all of these people have either lied under oath or leaked classified documents or deluded or uh, tried to uh, warp a FISA court judge so that in any uh, if you or I did that, we'd be charged with a felony in two seconds. James Comey leaked classified secret conversations of presidential conversations that he recorded or memorialized on FBI documents. He leaked it to the press for the express purpose of getting a special prosecutor appointed, special counsel who was, and it was his friend and former uh, predecessor, the, the predecessor of the FBI, Robert Mueller. And remember, the only reason he didn't go to jail was because post facto, months later, a committee at the FBI at the Washington office decided that those private conversations with the president were not secret. And who was on that committee? Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. So they say, you know what? There was nothing wrong with James Comey leaking these things. And we've now retroactively reclassified or classified them for the first time as not top secret, merely confidential. You can see the level of intrigue and corruption, and this is not even getting into 
Eric Kleinsmith, uh, Mr. Kleinsmith, the person mm-hmm. who forged a document, FBI lawyer, or Lisa Page, and the Amherst Text, where they talked of insurance policies. Twelve of the top FBI Washington officials, James Baker, Rebecca, all have resigned or retired or were transferred or were fired. So it's pretty disturbing. And the reason that we're not, I guess, in a critical mood right now and the Republic is not shocked about it is that the media saw all of this as tolerable because it's, they shared the same uh, aim of removing Trump as did the FBI and the CIA. Yeah, could, could not agree more. The word I've used frequently in my show about the conduct of the Democrats is just, it's so audacious that I think people almost get desensitized. They think, some, I mean, so many things happen and more implications and more wrongdoing and more cover-up and more deception. At some point, when you keep talking about it, it, it we, we, people get desensitized. They almost say, well, you know, we've been hearing these words for so long, it really couldn't be that bad. I want to shift because I want to honor your time. I want to shift and talk, though, about the investigation that Attorney General uh, Barr had announced. I think it was about May of this year when he was testifying before the Senate and saying he was going to ask for a special investigation by U.S. Attorney and appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham to look into the, as his word was, the predicate or the genesis of the entire Trump-Russia collusion hoax. How did it get started and who did that? So he appointed them and, and John, he appointed John Durham, U.S. Attorney Durham, who's been looking into it. And there seems to be increasing clamor, including uh, from myself, wondering what, what, what is taking so long? I do feel, I want to ask, as, you know, as a historian or observer, just an astute observer of politics, are you concerned with how long this investigation is taking Durham and Barr's investigation into looking into and rooting out what happened inside the FBI? No, I, 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 I was worried that he was not classifying it or characterizing it as a criminal investigation, but a few months ago, he did do that. And now, at that point, I'm a little bit relieved because I think the longer it goes on, the more thorough and the more damning it's going to be because there's certain things that everybody knows happened, and it's just a matter of finding corroborating evidence. And I think what we're going to see in the summer or the fall is that when these indictments start to come, a James Clapper or an Andrew McCabe or a John Brennan or a James Comey or their subordinates, uh, a Bruce Orr or Sally or whoever they are, are going to start talking and they're going to start explaining what their role was to, in efforts to get a reduced sentence. And I think, I think it's going to be pretty shocking because, uh, and we have to remember also that James Brennan has already admitted that on two occasions he lied under oath to the U.S. Senate, once about the Senate staffer computers and once about the drone program. And then James Clapper also lied when he talked about NSA surveillance. Both of them under oath, both of them had no consequence. So they don't have a reputation for honesty. And that, and that's going to be, I think, important. But when they come out and say, you know, I said this and somebody, how dare you question my integrity? People are going to know, well, your integrity doesn't exist. You've already admitted and apologized for lying to the U.S. Senate on their oath. And uh, we should also remember Adam Schiff was the chief prosecutor of the impeachment, uh, from not from the House, and he appeared in that role in the Senate. And this is a person who read in a fraudulent version of the Trump phone call. He data-mined his own colleagues' telephone records. He lied about his uh, relationship with the whistleblower or his staff's relationship with the whistleblower. 
as you mentioned, he mischaracterized collusion, which was already found to be non-existent by a special counsel. And uh, he gave a memo. He had a minority memo about the House Intelligence Committee uh, findings where he disagreed with the majority Nunes memo and he attacked Nunes. And then Michael Horowitz, the inspector general, found that most of everything that was in Nunes, uh, in the Schiff memo was false, deliberately so. So he, any other time in history, he would have been censored by his colleagues, and that didn't happen. And you can really see why these elections are important, because had the Democrats not taken the majority a year and a half ago, we wouldn't have had any of this impeachment circus, and we would have had a lot more subpoenas and a lot more rapidity in finding out what happened. But that loss of the House made an enormous difference. That propelled Nancy Pelosi and Gerald Nadler and and uh, Schiff into positions of power, and then it brought in people like the squad, and they had <laughs> yeah. an enorm- enormous influence on the mainstream Democratic politicians. Well, that may be a good segue. They sure did. They may be a great segue to my last quick questions related to the New Hampshire primary. It seems like the presence of the squad in the U.S. House and they're very uh, two of them are open members of the Democrat Socialists of America. And now we've had our second primary in New Hampshire. We have Bernie Sanders out in the lead. And I'm curious your reaction to the Democrats New Hampshire primary. Do you think do you think that the establishment and the Democrat Party is getting concerned about who's going to emerge as their actual candidate to challenge President Trump? And if so, do you think they're going to work to undermine Bernie Sanders this time? Or do you think their party shifted so far left? They're saying, hey, what the heck, we're socialists now. Well, I think there's there's the party and then there's the donor class and the people in Congress. And that's still uh people who are worried about Bernie Sanders, not because they're not socialists, just because they understand that if he were on the top of the ticket, they'd lose the Senate and they'd be wiped out in the House. Uh, They would not gain back the Senate. They would lose Senate seats and they would lose the House. So they're concerned and they're trying to, they look at the demographics and the analytics and they say to themselves, if you if you tally up Biden and you tally up Buttigieg and Cobart, we still have a majority of non-socialists votes but what the republicans learned that with trump that you can't get a candidate to voluntarily withdraw and give their votes to somebody else so the idea that biden is going to pull out and say vote for pete mayor pete or vote for senator kobachar is not going to happen and so that i think that means that as the strongest of the candidates but a clearly minority candidate in terms of votes that bernie sanders is on his way to get the nomination I know he's 78. He's not in great health. He's, he's got a long campaign ahead of him, but and I think he's the likely person to to get the nomination. And what's scary about it is, in normal times, he wouldn't have a chance. It'll be like 1972. But who knows what can happen in these times? I mean, uh, Trump's Trump has a very rigorous schedule. He's 73 years old. He's not in the greatest of health. And when you put a socialist on a national ticket and you have an election on that, that's a very scary thing, no matter what the chances are of him winning and losing. He has very little chance of winning the national election in November, but the fact that he's on the ballot is is frightening in the manner that, you know, George McGovern was. 
Absolutely true. Dr. Hansen, this is just such an illuminating and fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I will pile on your last point about uh, Bernie Sanders. Many Republicans say, I invite the, uh, I'd love to have the national political conversation. Let, let, let us have Trump and the Trump economy and the strength of our country now and everything's going well. Let the Democrats put up Bernie Sanders and let's have a conversation about socialism. I've said that myself. But if we're going to invite that conversation in this country, we better be ready, not just the president, not just the candidates, but everyday Americans in every facet of life. You've got to be ready to explain to people that what Bernie Sanders is talking about is not just unrealistic, it is dangerous. It's a, it's a healthy, good conversation to have. But patriots and freedom lovers, we need to win the converse, that conversation in America. So, again, Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for taking time and joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, folks, I have to tell you, this is a true, I, I don't know if, if any of our listeners, I'm sure some of you uh, read Dr. Uh, Victor Davis Hansen's writing. As I say, he's at the Stanford, the Hoover Institution. He is a, uh, you know, he writes at American Greatness. He writes at um, a variety of places, and he has so many great columns out. He had another one I'll quickly mention. His, his, and I also want to encourage you again about his book, The Case for Trump. Another column he had out that I just thought was really insightful and I want to mention to you, and I can't remember if we linked to it or not, but you can find it. It's called, Is Trump's Unorthodoxy Becoming Orthodox? And it was a really great point that and he gives examples in his article of the basic point that when, when candidate Donald Trump was running for the presidency in 2015 and 2016, a lot of things he said seemed so far out of the mainstream of the Republican Party. And a lot of people said, you know, you, you can't be talking about a wall. I mean, we can't do that. that. That's like the Great Wall of China. We, we can't do that. But as he continued to draw the public's attention to the danger of a porous southern border, the impact on crime, the impact on our economy, the impact on our jobs market, the impact on our sense of security, because we have people, not just people crossing the southern border because of poverty in their home countries. We have terrorists, we have cartel members, we have human traffickers. By the time he was done waking America up, President Trump, candidate Trump, waking America up, we went from thinking, well, that's a pretty unorthodox idea. I don't know about this wall idea to thinking, what else are we going to do? We have to have a secure border. He has made many ideas that were unorthodox, orthodox. Again, I urge you to get his book, The Case for Trump. Give it to your friends if they're on the fence. And also just to follow, if you don't follow Victor Davis Hanson, I to tell you his, I have his um, at twi on Twitter. He's at V as in Victor, D as in Davis, Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N, at V.D. Hanson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, a class, he's written books, he's a brilliant writer, brilliant thinker, wonderful commentator, and I just appreciate him taking time today, and also encourage that he has really helped, I think, the kind of more intellectual Republican, the serious thinker, embrace the idea that Donald Trump is doing exactly what our country needs to have done, um, even though he may, at the time he was running, have seemed like, and he was, in fact, a very not traditional candidate. So great interview. Thanks very much. I'm so glad Dr. Hansen could join us. I want to turn and talk about, um, I want to hit a few more things about the election in a moment, but I want to turn and talk about the deep state cracking. And I want to uh, hit on a couple stories. Going back, we were just talking about with, with Victor Davis Hansen. The people inside, he mentioned the whole slew of them in our interview, the people inside the FBI and the Department of Justice and the CIA and the National Security Council, 
these people all involved in varieties of ways to try to bring down the president, try to bring down the candidate as candidate Trump, try to bring him down after he won the presidency, try to bring him down through the Russia collusion hoax, try to bring him down through this impeachment that we just are finally through. And in fact, there's already talked, if you didn't know this, on the House side, the Democrats are already talking about new articles of impeachment. But leaving that aside, all of that was an effort by people who have long-term investment in Washington staying as it is long-term investment in the ruling elite class in Washington. They pull the strings, they decide policy, they say who's in charge, they decide what our policy is going to be about the Ukraine, they decide what our policy is going to be about anything. And the idea that an outsider, Donald Trump, not a loyalist to really the Republican establishment or the Democrat establishment, not a loyalist to them, not a guy who's willing to just toe the party line, not a guy who's going to follow the rules that the lobbyists have set down or the big donors have set down, a guy who's beholden to no one, a guy who came along and said, I'm going to write this ship in America. That is the people, all of those people orchestrating that, whether they were part of the coup attempt, whether they were part of the, you know, the Russia Trump collusion, whether they were part of the impeachment, all of those people, broadly speaking, you can describe as the deep state. And that term, people mock it, especially leftists mock it and say, oh, EBGB, oh, the deep state, you know, where, where do they have their meetings? In some super secret cave somewhere? They mock it. But the deep state is a mentality. It's not a membership club with a list of members and regular monthly meetings. It is a mindset. It is a mindset broadly spread through Washington and not just on the Democrat side of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, especially long-term entrenched people at the higher echelons of bureaucracy in the Department of State and in the, in other, uh, in the, within the White House, within the Department of Justice, within the FBI. High-level people, been there a long time, they know the game, they believe they're in charge, and they found the idea that some upstart billionaire from New York was going to run for Congress, excuse me, run for president, and was going to actually challenge their encrusted elite power, enrage them. And so this deep state mindset is, number one, it was, we're going to take Trump out in the campaign, he's going to lose, and if we don't succeed in that, we're going to take him out once he's won. So this deep state mindset also believed especially prior to Trump's victory, they believe that everything they cooked up against him, everything they cooked up, the whole Russia-Trump collusion, the, fall, the, the Steele dossier, which was just a fabrication of Christopher Steele and others trying to make President Trump look like a bad actor, trying to make him seem as though he could possibly be under the influence of the Russian government. All of that conduct, the actors involved and the actors involved who protected it, who hid it, who forwarded that effort, all those people thought there would never be justice. There would never, all that they were doing would never see the light of day. There would never be justice. There would never be a time when they were being called to explain their actions. They thought Hillary Clinton would win. 
and everything swept under the rug. So this deep state cracking and this deep, just because, to be clear, just because President Trump won does not mean that all these deep state actors are now saying, okay, now that he won, we surrender. Now we're going to go ahead and comply. We're going to be part of the Trump administration and we're going to embrace the new agenda of the Trump team. They stayed in place. They stayed in their positions like the Vindman twins we were talking about yesterday and also Dr. Hansen mentioned. Many players in Washington stayed in the positions they had because they then saw their job to be fighting, opposing, tripping up President Trump's agenda, not letting him move forward with the agenda the American people voted for. So to start with, but the reason we're getting around to all this about the deep state cracking is a few things have happened recently that make people a little bit hopeful, a little bit you know, maybe there's some, you know, actual cracking of this deep state, this hard shell, encrusted, you know, conspiratorial slithering snakes inside Washington who all back each other up and, and, and cover for each other. Maybe there's going to be some exposure of those people. Maybe that hard shell deep state is going to crack. First thing was, now we don't know yet the name, but I mentioned yesterday, I want to repeat again today to be clear that the person who wrote first the big took out the big piece in the new york times and then wrote the book about it also naming himself or herself anonymous basically saying who said i am inside the trump white house i am working every day to undermine his presidency i am we are going to stall his agenda i am fighting him at every step of the way and there are many of us here it was a person saying we're fighting trump and you america can't do a darn thing about it. in fact they thought they'd be cheered on so news out of washington was at least joe DeGeneva says and he's a very high-powered lawyer with contacts very high in the white house probably with president trump but very high in the white house says that the White House has finally succeeded in identifying who Anonymous is and that they are going to remove him. I'm assuming, it's, I think he said him, remove him. And this is, I mean, this is something you have to understand when he put this out there, Anonymous wrote this, this idea was no one's going to know. Not only am I going to put this out there under Anonymous terms, but New York Times isn't going to tell. I'm going to publish this book that he put out and the publisher of the book wasn't going to reveal his identity. No one in the whole cover up deep state Washington is ever going to expose my identity. But you know, if, if President Trump is nothing else, he is tenacious. He is determined. He's not going to let this go. So if they believe they've uncovered his identity. Please, I hope they, uh, they ultimately not only relieve him of his job, but tell America who it is. Okay, second point and this deep state cracking kind of thing I want to mention today, and that has to do uh, with Jessie Liu. And I meant to get a picture of her, and I didn't get one before I got here. But anyway, Jessie Liu is a Washington lawyer, a Washington uh, government lawyer. And what's happened in the last few days is a testament not just to the fact that the deep state might be cracking, that people are starting to figure out who inside, who seems to be a, a, a loyal government employee, a, a loyal government lawyer, who inside is actually a problem, actually a deep state operator, actually working against the interests 
of President Trump, who was duly elected. Jessie Liu was going to be, in fact, her, uh, she was supposed to be um, at, I got to get the uh, date of it. Um, she was supposed to be tomorrow, actually. She'd been nominated by President Trump, um, and she's supposed to have her hearing tomorrow um, for in front of the uh, Senate Banking Committee to be appointed as a deputy treasurer um, for the, uh, in, in the tra a deputy assistant in the Treasury Department. And so it was a, a position requiring Senate approval. So she was up for the nomination. Hearing was supposed to be tomorrow. And President Trump pulled her nomination. And she is the one backing up from this. This is, I'm getting at the point that she is one who is viewed to be or now suspicions are arising that she is one of these deep state operators, that she really, much as she stayed on and agreed to continue to be an attorney in the federal government after President Trump won the election, but she really may have been acting more on behalf of the Democrats or on behalf of the anti-Trump crowd. She was the Washington, D.C. U.S. attorney, um, and she was the one who intervened on behalf of and protected a gentleman named James Wolf, and if you remember the name James Wolf, he was the lawyer for the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he was the one who was exposed as having leaked, leaked top secret information to the New York Times, to a reporter with whom he was having an amorous relationship, and the information he leaked had to do with the FISA court application for um, which one was Carter Page? I think it was for Carter Page. Point is, this guy is getting information in the Senate due to his role as an insider in the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he's got the information and leaking it to the New York Times to his lover, and he did other leaks also. So numerous leaks of confidential information, and when he, he was prosecuted, he was arrested, he was prosecuted. But Jesse Liu, in her capacity at that time as U.S. Attorney in Washington, pushed to have him, or she bowed to the request of Senate Democrats to give him a very, very, very light sentence to only prosecute a little bit. So he, James Wolf, I think served 60 days or something like that, was facing, he, she, she's one that okayed a 60-day sentence for James Wolf because, or people are now suspecting because she was sympathetic to what he was doing. He was leaking things to hurt President Trump to help the Democrats take down President Trump. And he was, as I say, a lawyer for the Senate Intelligence Committee. So this became one reason people were suspicious about this Jesse Liu. And the other aspect that I want to mention is, this is not a story that you would find covered in the Washington Post or the New York Times or any of the other, you know, I will call them the Democrat media mob elite, but the Democrat media, the, the Democrat leftist, uh, media friendly only to the Democrats, friendly to the leftists, ne all, never friendly to President Trump, always trying to hurt him. You wouldn't have found this story, this link, and these suspicions arising about her in mainstream media. It came to President Trump's attention, it appears, because there first was an article on a website called the Conservative Treehouse. And I'm telling you, if you are really into heavy-duty research and diving in to read things, the Conservative Treehouse is a place that they are, they're certainly not mainstream media. They have one writer who goes by the name Sundance and who is constantly digging in, pulling out documents, understanding the roots of things, 
connecting dots, laying out timelines. And he's the one, he raised suspicions about Jesse Liu as she was about to be facing her confirmation hearing tomorrow. Now she won't have it because what was her role? His first question, what was her role? Why was she so willing to go really extremely light? I mean, to not press for serious charges and serious prison time for a a lawyer for the Senate Intelligence Committee who was who leaked numerous top secret documents. What is the reason if you're a loyal, forget loyal to Trump, loyal to the country, loyal to your job as U.S. attorney, you're not supposed to be making sympathetic deci- decisions, sympathetic to your political aspirations, or your political viewpoints. There was no reason to go light on him. There weren't extenuating circumstances that would say, well, okay, but he's not such a bad guy. He did a lot of bad stuff, and she pretty much let it go. So you have Jesse Liu pulled back. And this was also a, um, a real commentary, I think, on the need for the kind of media that Conservative Treehouse... Oh, so Conservative Treehouse ran their story, uh, and then Lou Dobbs on Fox also planted that story, also got that out there. What in the world are we doing elevating Jesse Liu, given her sympathy to this Democrat leaker? So he did that. And then Congressman Devin Nunes commented also on Lou Dobbs' show, just, you know, very happily agreeing that was a great thing, that there was a, a decision to pull back on, to not just let these deep state operators get moved up into positions of power. There also was a question about whether whoever it is on President Trump's team who is vetting all of these people before he nominates them, because obviously President Trump cannot sit there and read the lengthy resume of every single person in all the positions where he has to nominate people. He's got, he has to have a team he trusts. And so maybe the team he trusts, the one who to- told him, go ahead and nominate Jesse Liu, is just made of people who didn't actually, you know, they, they had no nefarious wrongdoing purpose. They just didn't dig deep enough. He looked good on paper, been in Washington a long time, held a bunch of positions. Or maybe some people are saying, you know, he ought to ask him, why is it you'd be recommending someone to put her in a highly sensitive position if this person actually was one who seemed to have acted in a, in a sympathetic way? Last example of this kind of cracking of the deep state has to do with the sentencing of Roger Stone. And let me back up and remind you, we were talking with Dr. Hansen in the last segment, Dr. Davis Hansen pointing out, it wasn't like there was a Trump-Russia collusion that actually happened. There was nothing there. Nothing happened. The entire Mueller investigation was based on lies and and just a conspiracy theory concocted against the president as part of the effort of people in power to remove him from office. So the entire Russia collusion thing that Mueller investigated that we spent millions of dollars on and just endless headlines for the first three years of President Trump's presidency involved an effort to take down the president based on a lie. And along the way, Robert Mueller dug up dirt on a bunch of other people, including Roger Stone. I mean, the idea that you would, and and Roger Stone seems to have also been part of the effort of the Mueller team to arm twist people connected to President Trump, hopefully to get President Trump somehow because these people arm twisted would give up President Trump and either confess a true story or make up an accusation, whatever it is they wanted. The Mueller team was vicious. 
vicious in going after people who had any affiliation with Trump. So here's Roger Stone. You know, he's been convicted and they're looking at sentencing him. And these DOJ lawyers, Department of Justice lawyers, came up with a recommendation of seven to nine years in prison, which was even by the vicious standards of the Mueller team, outlandishly outrageous, outlandishly outrageous. So President Trump tweeted out, hey, you know, this seems a little extreme, a little harsh, not sure this is right. And what has happened, and no one knows all the details yet of what happened inside the Department of Justice, but four lawyers, the Department of Justice, have quit. The lawyers involved in making this outlandish, vicious, retaliatory, unjustified recommendation of seven to nine years for Roger Stone. So those four lawyers have quit again unclear if those four lawyers quit is going to be because maybe they're going to help expose what's been happening inside the department of justice maybe they were called on the carpet and you know y'all were, were at the top of it all is attorney general Barr. you know was he was he finally tuned into this and saying oh, are you kidding me seven to nine years i have no no reason to think by the way Attorney General Barr was aware of these two lawyers or was involved in the discussions about the sentencing recommendation. But these are just little pieces of fact, little little stories, little pieces that add up to the idea that the relentlessness, the determination of the Trump administration and the people who are helping the Trump administration, short list of people, but you have Congressman Nunes, uh, Congressman Jordan, Mark Meadows, Matt Gates, uh, Congressman Louis Gohmert, People on the U.S. House side who are Republicans who are going to persist in demanding that the truth come out. Same thing on the Senate side. Very short list of people on the Senate side willing, but some, Lindsey Graham apparently, willing to say we're going to have hearings, we're going to get to the truth. But I want to wrap up this little segment and really my and the show for today by saying these are vital things that are happening to have people on the side of it's not on the side of trump versus democrats or republican versus democrats it's on the side of the american people deserve to have the justice system meet out justice they deserve to have investigators get to the bottom of what happened inside the doj and the fbi and expose the wrongdoers the whole long laundry list of them which may include some people who are representing their states in the u.s house or the u.s senate there are people who are on the short list of suspicious on some people's lists whatever it is the highest goal is to get out the truth bring it out including having people who've committed acts that should be that are illegal to have those people prosecuted brought to the justice system indicted prosecuted and marched off to prison if they really did what it seems like they did because if we don't do that if we don't demand justice we really will have surrendered our justice system to the latest conspiracy plot by people who are still sitting just like Nunes uh, was trying to explain to us on national television, these people, Devin Nunes said, you know, if we don't get to the bottom of this, we ha will have this mindset going forward. We'll have people thinking you can do this again. And you had Adam Schiff still lying to the American public and to the U.S. Senate in still throwing out Russia Trump collusion when there was nothing to it. To wrap up to say the deep state needs to crack. 
We need to have more people coming forward. We need to have more willingness of the Trump administration and people who are loyal to the Trump administration in the House, in the Senate, going after the truth, bringing the wrongdoers to justice, or we simply will not have the justice system we, the American people, deserve. At the end of every show, I always turn and tell you, uh, again, why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we talked about today and the New Hampshire, the postmortem of the New Hampshire primaries, uh, the last four reelected presidents, Reagan, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama. So these are reelected presidents, two Democrats, two Republicans, vote tallies when they ran virtually unopposed in the New Hampshire primary. Reagan in 1984, you can see his number, 65,000. Clinton in 96, 76,000. Bush, you know, that's W in 2004, 52,000. Obama, 2012, 49,000. President Trump last night, 127,000 and still counting. The point is, even in a, you know, left kind of more moderate state like New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Republicans are pouring out in the primary to vote for President Trump, even though he's unopposed in any serious way. On the Democrat side, results are a sideshow. Socialist Sanders won New Hampshire in 2016 by 22 points. He won it by 1.5 this year. Klobuchar rising, Buttigieg facing new scrutiny. We'll have to get at that next week. Warren and Biden are fading. Yang and Bennett are out. Bloomberg is being excoriated by the Democrats. We'll talk about that another time. This is not where the establishment Democrats want to be today. And as the deep state beginning to crack, backlash against swamp lawyer Jesse Liu, nomination pulled by President Trump, covered up for the Senate Intelligence Committee, okayed a 60-day sentence to James Wolf, who admitted Senate staff leaker responsible for national security, who was also having an affair with a New York Times reporter to whom he leaked the secret document. Backlash from Roger Stone's sentencing recommendation. Four lawyers resigned seven to nine years of jail time for lying to the feds, who were themselves lying about the existence of any crime by the Trump administration. Backlash against Anonymous, identified and removed from the White House staff, an author of the New York Times column proudly proclaiming his purpose to subvert Trump's agenda. Now, my friends, what about all 19 lawyers on Mueller's team? What were they doing all the time? What, when they could see there was no evidence of collusion from the beginning, what were they doing for up to three years? What about the 40 FBI agents assigned to Mueller? What were they doing? Why did FBI Director Ray permit this? More uncovering of truth must happen. And that, my friends, is my show for today. Email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. I'd love if you follow me on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, like our Facebook page, comment on any of the forms of social media, love the American political conversation about preserving America, the most extraordinary experiment in human liberty to ever bless this earth. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk for today. Come back every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can you America, can we talk truth about America? Can you